I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book, the podcast for enthusiastic and engaged readers that will help you discover new books in all genres, hear conversations with your favorite authors, and keep you updated on just what's going on in the literary world. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to interview Matthew Weiner, the creator, director, writer, producer of Mad Men, and now a debut author of Heather the Totality. It was a blast talking to him. We spent over two hours talking about, gee, everything you can imagine. Oh, yeah, and then we got to the book. And stay tuned after my interview with Matthew to hear some great book recommendations on books to distract you. I notice in the bookstore that people are looking for endings that are happily ever after, or just good fun. And these books are entertaining and might be just what you need at this moment. Now, let's get to my conversation with Matthew Weiner. Matthew Weiner has been an influential creator of two of the most redefining television shows of our time. As an executive producer and writer of The Sopranos, and creator, producer, and writer of Mad Men, racking up 15 Primetime Emmy Awards, 26 nominations, four Golden Globes, and changing the landscape of TV. He now joins us as a debut novelist with his riveting tour de force entitled Heather the Totality. Matthew, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thrilled to be here. (laughs) What are we going to talk about? I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. In your new book, we meet Karen and Mark Breakstone, both unremarkable, aspirational, slightly damaged, in the most ordinary of ways. Finding each other a little late in life, living life in the upper echelon-ish world of uptown New York City with their perfect daughter, Heather. From there, we enter a spare, high-speed, compelling, seductive, roller coaster ride, a collision of cultures, and an overriding need to protect their daughter. I have to say, I was not aware until very deep into the process of writing the book that it, that it had anything to do with income inequality. Really? I don't write about ideas like that. So, I write about so desire. So you? Desire. Oh, not the character, like, the, the, the characters. Yes, yeah. the characters. Like, you know, I was much more influenced by Taken than I was by Pickety. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I read that and I'm interested in it and I find it fascinating. But I wanted to write about this parental dynamic of uh, and marriage dynamic yeah. of people competing over a child. I wanted to write about what a regular person is capable of. Mm. And I mean a really irregular person. A yeah. regular person whose weaknesses turn out to be strengths. Uh, an attempt to in an act of heroism and heroism being exactly what you think it is, where you actually are doing something to where your own life is, is, is at risk and you don't even think about it. But I love the idea about this mother and father competing over this kid. And that kid was not, it, it, it's sort of been synopsized as beautiful child and how pretty she is and everything. And that was not what it was about. She happens to be beautiful mm. also. But it's really about this thing. And I have a, had a child. I had a child. I have a child like this who's grown up um, and I've experienced it with other children. And I've experienced it, especially not only personally, but in the newspaper of reading stories about people who, especially teens, who have this sense of empathy and how vulnerable they are to predators. Yeah. So that was a very interesting element, I thought, of the book. 
And and that notion hadn't occurred to me before is about by virtue of being empathetic, you make yourself more vulnerable. I think you just don't. And you think you Bobby see, you see realized things that? so much from other people's personality, from other people's point of view, that you kind of think that they're more entitled to their feelings. I really think that's what it's about. It's about a kind of fairness and a sense of, and you, you don't have the same protective, um, selfish idea of, of um, feeling danger. So do you think... Do I think Bobby's like that? No, Bobby do you think Bobby that? sensed that? I think, yes. I think Bobby is a, is a predator and he can feel... I think Bobby, more than anything, was not about is she weak enough for me to have. Bobby could sense... Bobby's evolution into wanting Heather is really like, he's a sociopath. He already looks at human beings differently. In a different way. Different way. And by the way, you know we're surrounded by sociopaths. They're usually not murderers. And it's a tremendous advantage to not have a conscience or empathy. And we frequently run into these people and they are sweet and kind um, and have feelings. But they do say things like, why are you crying? Because they are curious. Do you think they do have feelings? Well, I know that they have, that they're sensuous mm, that's and that different. they are, and that they are sentimental mm. and that they are emotional. So I count those as feelings that they feel sad. Yeah, that's a good way. And they feel no, I get that point. Do they feel that other people have feelings? No, they're mystified by that. They, do they think they have feelings? Yes. They, mm. they, I mean, you only know what you know. You know, I'm curious about that. Well, that I mean, that's don't... what I write about is, is just... You only know what you know and it becomes normal. And anybody, we are, I believe my job as an artist is to um, create feelings and situations even wordlessly so that other people have confirmation of their feelings, not to validate their opinions or their sense of justice or something external, but to just not feel as alone, you know, because you recognize that. So Matthew, (laughs) to what extent is the kind of subtle damage living in this sort of upper echelon-ish planet was critical to Mark and Karen behaving the way they did in or- by being competitive about Heather and being protective I, of her. I, the reductive answer is there's never enough. Mm. If they'd only had the penthouse. Right. If they'd only made a little bit more money. Right. He could have been living in Central Park and just looked out on it every day and remembered his childhood instead of having to deal with being the victim of someone richer than him. They don't have enough. They have so much. They have more than anybody and they don't have enough. And they and they will never have enough because they are lacking from their childhoods that we learn about. That's what I'm saying. I reversed engineered it to create people who would behave the way I wanted them to behave or I thought they would at the ending. But don't you, you know, in the world that you've traveled in, I'm sure you've seen this up and down the food chain. There's never such a thing as looking good enough, having enough money, having the right. You know, you could look at someone and say, I did they an look entire, like they have everything. I did an entire season of Mad Men that was all about um, success. And the fact that that was not a reset in yourself. N- that it was nothing. literally everything was, it was back still to zero. Still bottomless. I, it's, it, you know, what are, what hole are you trying to fill? That's why I wanted you to know about Mark's sister mm. who died of anorexia. Right. That informed his relationship with Karen and his relationship and with, with Heather. Heather, especially. Yeah. 
um, I wanted you to know that he was, um, his father was physically abusive and then considered him feminine because he didn't like sports. That his, his father face, was a coach, His right? father's a yeah. football coach and history teacher. That his, um, uh, that he was physically unattractive and considered bland and self-conscious about it. Right. All of that stuff creates who we are. And you can do it in a novel a lot easier than you can in a movie because so, you have to watch it. But when, when you think about Mark's face and how it affected his life and how happy he was to have Karen. What was the line? There was a line that you had, which I thought was great, about Mark. His father found him lacking in aggression and eventually gave up bullying him, finding him best suited for supporting the real warriors like a girl. He did eventually show some athletic ability and cross-country running, which required psychological discipline, but was solitary and dismissive of the teamwork his father found most valuable. By junior year, Mark knew that he preferred to be quietly competitive and that he didn't get along with men because he hated the anonymous place they assigned him when they were in groups. Sounds like a lot. Yeah. So, Matthew, what are the so, things... And then you get to Bobby... Uh, who is the ultimate, the, uh, in, the ultimate individual yeah. and the ultimate animal and also completely isolated. You know, one of the things I thought I about... I interrupted your question. I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, it's, you're entitled to do that. No, I um, feel bad. I, I'm loving this. Com- this is an actual conversation. <laughs> I'm loving it. I just feel like uh, Don't we're worry. talking about the book. I just want you to, you know... So here, here's the question I had. So I read this in one fell swoop. Like I started it at like 10 and I finished it. Do you consider that a good thing or a bad thing? I consider that what I I search for constantly. A book that is so absorbed. To me, this was like a roller coaster. Yeah. It was just a roller That's coaster. So good it was so That's tight. Such a great thing and this hear. is my question about yeah. that. So this is spare, riveting. You're not leading the witness, which right. I love. But this is such a different way of communicating a concept than the long form storytelling. I was worried about its reception because I know that on some level it is new. But I also in, you know, I wouldn't say... How hard was it for you to shift to that? Oh, that's... That was easy? It's hard to to finish anything. But there was something exciting about this because also, don't forget, for me, it was a treat to have this murder. Yeah. That's not normally the way I work. Right. And it is an extra story engine that I remember from The Sopranos where all of a sudden you're just like, you definitely can hold people's attention for longer. But I didn't think that I could keep that tension going for longer than that distance. And by the time I got to the end of it, I remember... It would have been too painful if it went on longer. I think people would be like, enough. Enough. Yeah. Because I could barely... Yeah. I was like, I. Someone's going to flip to the end. I'm I okay never with go that. to the end. I, I can get, I can handle that. But I was close. I get it. I that's ex- an incredible compliment. <laughs> but I have to say, like, I remember seeing the dead, the mm-hmm. James Joyce book, yeah. in a monograph on the side of the cash register at the Strand, and thinking like, this is an impulse item. That is almost the same length as this. It's a little shorter than Heather. Yeah. It was written. Who knows what? It's a novel. What's a novella? I don't really care. I, uh, I didn't want this to be too disruptive because you get punished for that. But I thought the story was the amount of length that it should be. I thought, and I, think I also so. thought as a reader, this is how I approach the commercial, my commercial sensibilities are. What do I want? 
what would I, what do I enjoy? I feel like most of the books that I read, even that I love that are coming out right now would be, and most of the authors feel that way. Someone had the quote, uh, somebody said, I, I wrote you a, I, Mark Twain said, I, uh, I, I wrote you a letter. It would have been shorter, but I ran out of time. Mm. <laughs> um, I, when I was working on it, just said, this is, I admire things that I can, I didn't know would be one sitting. I had no idea how long it was going to be. I knew it was longer than a short story. I knew it was longer than the 1500 words that I thought I was going to do. Like, that's so easy. That's yeah. harder than this. I didn't, I still cut things out of it. I wasn't going to pad it because I knew I couldn't sustain that, that yeah. tension for too much longer. I knew that seeing these two trains, it's almost a cinematic device to, to, to start these different stories and not even say how they're related. And you know that they're heading towards you know. each other and how I'm going to enjoy that. And, and the hardest part was when I finally got to the event of them meeting, which is very deep in the story. I love the I way was you like, do, well, do that I was like, I better, I better milk this. And that is like, I better milk this. I better not that was so make perfect. it an expectation. I just, I, I, the idea of like you running in place it. and distracting you, you a little that. bit. You know, Bobby's going to the city. You don't know what's going to happen. Mm. You've forgotten about it, hopefully by then. But what I was going to say is, so I thought as a reading experience, if everything that I find boring, I actually cut. If there are very few things that I love that I cut, there's some, there were some things. Uh, if I am constantly changing voices, what can I do to keep myself interested in it as I'm writing? Mm. So anything, you know, Heart of Darkness, like you're not going to find furniture described in Heart of Darkness unless it's part of the story. And especially as a filmmaker, I'm always giving a blueprint at the beginning of a scene of, for, for my production designer, for my costume designer, for my casting people. All of that is there. Um, but I didn't want to set the scene. And I wanted it to have so much story that you literally were like, whoa, 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 what was that? You know what? I don't, I don't have time for that. You don't need, that's for another time. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you this story. I'm only going to tell you what's important. And, you know, people and the dialogue becomes, and I, I've become better at explaining this because people have asked me about it. The dialogue is embedded in the narrator. That's right. But it is not dialogue. It is not, it is rarely conversation. I felt like when you present something as a conversation, you are inviting interpretation. I know when I can do it in this way that I am getting inside the character's head and hearing their perception of the conversation. Mm. I said, he said this, and then she said that. And I give you an example of like when, when Karen's walking down the street and freaking out about Heather's birthday, mm. and you see her, you hear her lose her temper in her mind. Because she never texts Heather, right? That. And goddamn, it's her birthday. She should decide, right? That that Jack story that she yes. tells. Yeah, you can't do that in dialogue. So sometimes I see sentences pulled out of context from the book at this point that are in the mind of a thirteen-year-old girl. I wanted you to have the experience that that was exactly what you said. Would it be something people want? I want that. You could compare it to the movies. You compare what else it is. But here's a reading experience. I saw James Patterson was talking about this. Yeah. Here's a reading experience. Not to get people back to reading, but I am going to... Hopefully, there's a little poetry in there. I get to write sentences that I'm interested in. Hopefully, these people stick with you. Hopefully, it gets embedded in your internality. But I'm going to give you a story that will hold your attention. And then I'm going to hang all my poison on it like I, like I want to as a writer. But... Um, and my treats, 
but I want you to, it's, you know, it's like the ending. I want the ending not don't to be, I'm away. not going to, but the way that, the, that it ends, the last sentence, I don't want it to feel like it's Aesop's fables. I just want it to, to ring like a bell. It did. And you're just like, stop short because it's new in some way. If people would be open to it, well, especially with my name on it. Okay, well, this is this is that was a whole other context of, uh, of, you know, and I'm I have no problems admitting that. But here's the response to that. I think publishers make a mistake thinking a book has to be a certain length to put a price on it. And they're driven too often more by that than they are about just making the book as tight as it can be. So people will be thrilled. People I think it's a great feeling to finish a book and to not abandon it. On the other hand, there is something, people compare it, you know, Mad Men to these things. There is something about settling into a Russian novel and meeting 800 people. I, you know, I got back Gentlemen from Moscow is a great example. I got back into fiction by listening and then finishing in, uh, in reading form to East of Eden. And I just... What made you pick that up? My kids had to hear it. We were on vacation. They were supposed to read it and they didn't in time. And we were listening to Audible and we were up there. Did you love it? It just sucked me in again yeah. to what right. I loved. Yeah. I started off. It's It's got... It reminded me of, of the entertainment of a book. And yeah. that book is entertaining. Yeah. Totally. Uh, I mean, I don't want to take anything away from the fact that John Steinbeck is a genius and it was his most mature work. And, and you know, The Grapes of Wrath I'd already read. And I read The Pearl, which is you know, shorter than this, yeah. but, but, but has stayed but with me East longer. Of Eden. But East of Eden, there's a thing. He starts off. You know, he is, doesn't sell anymore. Nobody's reading, you know, high schools assign it, but I often. Really? Nope. And uh, it's very hard, hard to get The Grapes of Wrath? I don't believe it. Adult, I'm talking about not outside of is assigned reading. Is The Grapes of Wrath that's not on that table with kill, To Kill a Mockingbird, where it's with all the retro stuff? You know what? To Kill a Mockingbird does continue to sell. But Catcher in the Rye? Catcher He's still the on the same table at the airport. A little bit less. But John Steinbeck, who I loved his books, you cannot interest. I'm going to try I'm not going to argue with you about I'm it. But I, it's not like William Faulkner where people are, where there's a generation who's like, who is that? No, no. Which is horrifying. Right. On the other hand, my kids are into Steinbeck. They are. They read The Pearl and then they read East of Eden, at least at their school. I three years apart from West each other. Coast. Well, good. <laughs> He's ours. He's ours. So, I, I, But I wanted to say something about like setting the story. Yeah. So he starts off telling you about the location. This is the valley. This right. is what happens. This is when the rain comes. This is what the land is worth. This is what the people who came there. Then his own family. This is where my family was. We grew up here. I remember the summers, blah, blah, blah. Then he starts the fictional family with Adam. Yeah. Then Adam, he tells about Adam and Adam's such a character and he lost his leg, but he was barely in the war. Then the boys are born. Right. Then... No, then there's Kathy. And as soon as Kathy comes in, who I'm is... I'm going to reread it. Kathy is, bo- is, is, is worse than Bobby. Kathy is one of the most evil characters in literature. To the point that I remember hmm. re- when I read about it afterwards. But anyway, just entertainment value. I was just like, this is what I love. Yeah, gripping. Yeah, and I had missed out on that sure. because you get older and you read fiction. Yeah. And I just didn't want it to end. Yeah. So I do understand that. But there is satisfaction in a smaller piece like this, especially because I think because it, it refuses to waste your time. If you give into it, you will have a very intense experience. And, I think you know, that's right. Uh, you know, um, Michael Shaven, we were talking about, I had not read it, but uh, he read, he compared to Muriel Spark. And I read that book, Driver's Seat. Yeah. 
And it's just one of those things, which is just like, yeah. Well, I love short it's stories. It's a genre. It's, pol- it's policier. It's like a, a noir, but it's I think not. there's you're, not you're enough. I don't think there's enough what I would call, I don't know whether this would be a novella or a, but well, I don't think there's enough of that. I don't want to sound like too much of a capitalist, but I do not question having benefited from an economic shift that made Mad Men possible. Yeah. I do not when they talk about page count, they're talking about what the public will pay for. And it, there's always a miscalculation. I think they're about, wrong. And well, uh, maybe we'll, I'm we'll, a see how, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I, I don't know. I can tell you that reverse engineering, reverse engineering, I think you get your money's worth. I, I think I it costs less than two tickets to the movies. Yeah, well, exactly. You know, I. And you are getting to see a movie. I do not think people assess it in quite that way. I don't think people pick up a book in the bookstore and say, wow, this seems like a lot per page count. Uh, I just I don't, don't think, so think they look at books that way. Because you know what? Uh, how they long? don't look as a big fat book that's $25 is a bargain. How long is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Oh, I don't know. That's it's a good like question. 40 pages. 40 pages. The Metamorphosis, 60 pages. Right. Uh, you know, people are reading Animal of Farm again, not just in school. I'm just telling you, it's like the little prince is there, and granted it has drawings in it and you can read it to your kid, but is there any price you wouldn't pay to have that book in your life? Right. So uh, I, I don't know as an artist, I'm like charging them what it's worth, but I really did think that I was hoping that this would be new in some way. I love being able to read something and finish it. Patrick Modiano, but he's the one, he's the French guy who won the yeah, Nobel Prize. It's funny. I've never read him. I, it wasn't in translation for a while, but someone gave it to me. If it shouldn't matter. The thing that I learned and that I had a couple of professional writers tell me when I was worried about this, about, first of all, it being too long for a short story, then being too short for this. And did I have to put something with it? And is it? And was that a big debate with your publisher? No, they were. No, because my agent said it's a novel. She said it's novel concentrate. It is the experience (laughs) of reading a novel. It's a new term. No, you know what? I mean, we were just talking about what it was, Yeah. you know, and... When I was reading the early pages, people are like, I don't know if this is really old, what you're doing, or really new. I don't know. I think it's timeless. They've existed before. Yes, but like the the narrator, the omniscient narrator, who apparently knows nothing in mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> right, I, 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 which I like. Uh, it was not on purpose. But just the, I'm going to tell you a story. The, the, it is a psychological experience that is in some way unique and you worry that forgetting about the length or anything like that, you worry that, that it's, it is new and, it, and people aren't open to it. And what are they going to compare it to? I, I don't I, think I'm so. Just like, I think this is um, going to be an intense experience. And I, when we talked about making it you know, longer, what else do you have? I was like, well, I could do Mrs. Dalloway. I mean, and add another story and blend it in there. I could do Charles Dickens, but it would have to be a whole bunch of other characters. I think it's right the way it is. But I said, I am positive that I cannot add much more. I probably added about 2,500 words to what the original manuscript was. And I had cut plenty. That, that if, like I was saying, that if I push it any further, how long can you stand the glass being on the edge of the thing? Mm. I, I just, let's not make people sick. Exactly. So Matthew, how'd you find the experience of writing this compared to writing screenplays? Well, first of all, uh, when I write, uh, Mad Men in particular, um, I write, I have a, a group of people that help me break the story. That means make an outline. Right. 
And then I dictate the first draft or even when I'm rewriting someone else's draft. So I get a draft sometimes from another writer and I dictate my rewrite and it's out loud and it, it goes, someone else is at the computer and I had not sat down at the computer to write something on my own other than email or a, a last minute rewrite in eight or 10 years. And how was that experience for you? Was it hard? It was invigorating. And it was wh- terrifying, but invigorating. And why invigorating? I had to be my own audience all by myself. Mm. And it also, I probably shouldn't even mention this, but I have to. At the end of Mad Men, I realized that I had achieved a dream of having an audience. Yeah. That means a critical audience. A nice size audience, man. Oh, yes, absolutely. No, no, no. no <laughs> that but, worked. But, 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 and also critics and bloggers and people mm. who tell you what you're allowed to do and what they expect you to do. And often they're wrong at the moment and they often hate the thing that you love the most. And it's not, you do not decide what they think it means. Right. And it's not a failure in communication to have them think it means something else. Right. I could not help the fact that so many people thought that Betty Draper had been molested as a child. It just was never part of my story. Her, her father sexually uh, um, uh, uh, mistaking her was, was an, a story in, from my family that had to do with someone who had Alzheimer's. But everyone would project that onto it. People thinking that Sally Draper was destined to be a lesbian. Hmm. You know, I just like... They just made that up. I think they brought what they wanted to bring to it. And yeah. I did not know just because Betty Draper said that one time. Who was your model for Don Draper? There really isn't. There is no one in advertising like him. There was never, uh, it, it's it, the biggest fallacy of the show was that there was ever a writer a who had that much charisma. <laughs> right. There were plenty of, There must know, have been some, Matthew. I think as writers, but there are a lot of uh, account men who look like him. Yeah. And who have that quality of charismatic sales. I mean, there's very, very charming salesmen and th- th- you hear about Jim Jordan and, you know, there's lots of people like that. But he was, to me, I was interested in a, in a more old-fashioned leading man. Uh, at the time when I did it, no one can imagine this, but there was no one like, who looked like John Hamm who was in a leading role. Like in between George Clooney and uh, on ER and Mad Men, you had James Gandolfini you had, you know, it might as well have been the late 60s and Dustin Hoffman and so yeah, forth. Yeah. You know, there was no Robert Redford lead at that time. And most of the good guys looked like me more than, you know, they were Seth Rogen or something like that. Or Steve Carell or so, not that he's unattractive or anything like that. But no. And people like Bradley Cooper were playing the villains. Right. So to have, to tell the network that I wanted this handsome Gregory Peck Gee, looking guy. I never guy. thought about that. It was, it was slightly radical. And did you see him as He was dark? not an everyman. Did you see him as dark right from the beginning? I wrote that pilot about a man who was, uh, Rachel Mencken says it to him, who's disconnected. Yeah. Who is existential. Not unlike Mark. Except yes. that Mark, except Mark, except Mark really turned handsome. it to be... But Don Draper's good looks and everything and his his, so, his social mobility, that, that was based on his looks and his... That was my story of the 20th century. Right. I realized that the people who ran the United States were all from rural poverty they ha- in, the mid- in the 20th century. They lied about their childhoods because they were embarrassed. They created these identities for themselves and, we, and aspired to be landed gentry wasps and eventually created that image. Yeah. You know, but his good looks didn't save Don Draper. 
Right. I mean, it ultimately save him. He would have never been where he was. Yeah. Um, he took advantage of it. He had been also abused because of it. Right. I think he did trade on his charm, but he was he was insatiable. And, yeah, and that's had what such, I mean. And had such low self-esteem. The story for me was about him. I mean, I'm using these psychological terms from I never thought of it that way. I did think about him having an attachment disorder. I did think, you know, everyone's like, who is he based on? I'm like, he has more in common with Marilyn Monroe yeah. than he does with anybody who was ever in advertising. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that because Seriously. what I was going back to about Don Draper was what we talked about before. That no With amount, Norma Jean, I mean. Yeah, that no amount of achievement ever fills whatever that empty hole is. And That's his, where he becomes a metaphor for America. Exactly. <laughs> but yes, no, it doesn't. What is the hole? It's the absence of the mother. You know, and it's funny that you say Marilyn Monroe, because I just recently read a biography. Of Did they her. have a lot of stuff from the doctor? No, no, this was Barbara Leeming wrote a biography of Marilyn Monroe that did a brilliant job of helping you understand both the incredible sadness mm -hmm. and the incredible shrewdness mm -hmm. of her. You know, when you think about when Arthur Miller had to go get called b before the House yeah. Committee on um, Activities during activities, McCarthy, yeah. Marilyn Monroe knew that the way she could distract from this is they lived down at 10 Gracie Square. She arranged for a press conference before they headed to Washington in front of 10 Gracie Square. She was all dolled up, looking gorgeous. Mm -hmm. She was the one who helped answer questions. Then they were whisked off to Washington for these hearings. Yeah, I mean, she, she made that up. As she is acutely aware of her image and acutely aware of all of it, but also there is a psychological profile that was released right before uh, I started the show that recounted her radical therapy that she experienced, including living with her psychiatrist as a, as a family member. Mm. And um, that was not a big part of the book. The well, biography I what read. I found was her childhood, her inability to really attach to other people, her feelings about herself, her feelings about her beauty, her grandiosity and self, you know, all of that mixture was that's that's done if you take all the characters in mad men you can consolidate them together as one person and peggy uh, and don peggy don joan pete roger they're all aspects they're characters they have reasons for why they do what they do do you miss them uh yeah sometimes i mean i'm so happy that it's whole yeah and that someone can experience it and see the trajectory by the end of it and have the experience yeah. that I wanted them to have on some level. I'm yeah. so happy that I don't have to worry about it anymore, that I'm not doing a sequel to it in a way for me. That Do you see a movie ever? I don't. I really don't. You don't? No, I just, I, I wanted it to be the way it what was. What it is. Yeah. So you it, wrote Let me it. just tell you something. There's 92 hours of it. Like a vault. Yes. And they were done 13 <laughs> at a time and then seven at a time. And I never knew if there would be more. And every season ends with the end of the series, as far as I'm concerned. And I, we, our goal was to never repeat ourselves. So I don't know what more could be done. I stopped that thing because I was afraid that the machinery... Like the book. That the, yes. Like the book. That's the show business. Right? Marilyn Monroe would sit here and say, leave them wanting more. Uh, you want to have people say, is that thing still on? So, Matthew, tell me, if, if, tell me. But I, I don't I want the that... machinery that tells the story to get worn out. Also. Right. 
did you write Mad? You wrote the pilot for Mad Men in two thousand. Yeah, and it was picked up. Yeah, two, around two thousand. Yeah. And it was picked up by AMC in two thousand and seven. Right? It went on the air in two thousand. Went on the air. When did it get picked up? It by got them? picked up in like two thousand and six, I guess. Two thousand five. What were the? What was going on in those six years while you were trying to get well, that show three, picked up? For the first two and a half years, I was working, continued to work in sitcom. Right. And then you were on the it was sent to, no, then it was not yet. sitcom. It was sent to David Chase, the pilot, and he hired me for the Sopranos based on the pilot for Mad Men. That was my writing sample. Wow. And, and then, he gave it to HBO. And when he revealed that he did not want to run the show, they turned it down. Yeah. I, they turned it down so many times. We never stopped trying. Had AMC done anything like that before? That AMC, seems like. No. AMC came in at the end. And they had just they must had a, ch- a regime change. They 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 did love me for a while, and then uh, they got rid of the people that had brought me over there. And then it became a very complicated relationship for them. They they uh, they did not. Um, I'm so done talking about this, but uh, but they they did not behave well during the thing. Mm. They really were were constantly negotiating with me emotionally and otherwise to say things like, "Who are starting off with? Who the hell do you think you are?" Then. Uh, you're a writer, we're running the business, then don't tell us what to do, then we can That's do this, we can do this without you. And in the end, Good how luck. are you, how are you bigger than us? These were all the emotions that were expressed during it. And really not, uh, and at the, and as I believe as a negotiating tactic, constantly, literally from like the, the day after the first premiere, telling me how the show was a failure, constantly, no matter what happened. I remember the second season, our premiere came out, and the first season we had gotten a 0.9. That's just under a million people for the premiere. The second season, we got a two. And I talked to the head of the network, and he gave me this very disappointed speech about how they had to make goods because they promised people a three. And all I remember saying to him was like, you're in business. My division just doubled by 100%. And I've been in TV. None yeah. of these people have really been in TV. They've been in sales, right, advertising right. sales. But, and I had to go down and tell the crew, um, because it was right after the premiere and everybody used to care about the ratings, how great we'd done. And I was really heartbroken because they, and I now look back and I think they were just constantly trying to tell me that they didn't need it. And so they would never have to pay anybody. And that's, that is a strategy. You know, they played hardball. But in the end, no one ever asked me for another show. No one ever made a development deal with any of my... Um, same thing with Lionsgate. No one ever made a development deal with anybody on, that worked on the show. All those people are... Everyone that I worked with is going to create a show somewhere. I'm positive of it. There are, half of them are working with me on the Romanoffs, but they are so talented. Um, they never asked me for anything other than one little uh, thing. Uh, during the final contract negotiation, they said something like, we would like a sequel for... Uh, featuring Sally Draper set in the future and, uh, you know, later than the mm-hmm. show. And I was like, I'm never doing a sequel. And never, no one ever, no one ever tried to do more business with me. So. Well, too bad for them. Honestly, by the time I had swung my elbows around enough to have control over my fiefdom and to try and do it on budget, which was always the deal. Yeah. I, uh, you know, the amount of money that we spent on these things was really negligible. And, once they, once Lionsgate later than that tried, they're always, there's a pushback. And, you know, Lauren Michaels gave me some advice during this thing. He goes, you know, they do their job and you do yours. 
Yeah. And part of their job is doing that. And so you're trying to be an adult about it. And God knows the show is filled with analysis of these two businesses. Yeah. Of both AMC and Lionsgate's businesses. Just like a third tier company that doesn't know how to behave like a first tier company. Um, You know, all these things that were happening. And by the end, you know, we're winning awards and, you know, Vince Gilligan still works there. And I, I assume he had a slightly different experience. But for me, it wasn't like my feelings were hurt. I was just like, I don't need to work in an environment Doing where, that. where, yeah, where um, David Chase was not treated that way by HBO. Well, by HBO is a very different there, company. Well, I don't know because they've never wanted to be in business with me. I, have, I don't want to spend too much time. I have no bitterness about my experience with these two companies. It was the best thing in the world. I just chose not to go back there. Fine. Seriously. What's the book that changed your life? Uh, lots of books have changed my life. The book that sort of rearranged your brain a little bit. Catcher in the Rye. Okay. And I why? read it. Uh, well, because I actually, we were living in Sweden. My father is a scientist and he was on sabbatical. There were very few books in the house and I was in second grade. And you I read, read Catcher in the Rye yes, in second grade? I did. Did I you did. even understand most of it? I don't think I knew what a prostitute was. I knew That's what good. A, I, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I did. But I knew that he was with the girl and he was nervous about it and that he was supposed to do more. Uh, it was So second 70s. grade, you're like eight, right? Or seven? Eight or nine years. I think that's the youngest I've ever heard anybody read Catcher in the Rye. It was not. Well, my, my oldest son's middle name is Holden. So I have, do have some, some connection to it for life. I, I love that I'm here at Little Brown talking about this because I know what, what a risk it was for them to, to, to take him. Yeah. I felt that there was a communication there that I understood the rest of my life. I didn't know he was talking to a psychiatrist. Yeah. I didn't know lots of things. In fact, sometimes when I read it again in, in high school or in ninth grade, they started analyzing it. I didn't know who David Copperfield was. I didn't know any of that. But they started analyzing it. And I started feeling very removed and kind of disappointed because I had a much more innocent perspective on it. But what I did understand is that I had siblings. I had parents. I longed to be in Manhattan. Yeah. I longed to meet someone under the big clock. I, I longed to be on my own in the city. And I also had this feeling already of melancholy about my childhood. Which and what about the idea of a secret life? Because if you think here's about- the things that you grasp onto. Let's not make me too precocious. Mm-hmm. Phonies. Yeah. Well, uh, that's a pretty precocious concept in second grade. I think knowing that adults were putting stuff on, yeah. or at least thinking that, yeah. I knew that. You knew that. I knew that. Uh, I think you know it right away. Actually, I think five year olds know it when they watch The Wizard of Oz and they suddenly realize that they suddenly are afraid of it. They're like, "Why are you showing this to me?" <laughs> Um, I don't like, um, I remember just the, honestly, for me, it was an adventure story. Yeah. It was a boy's mm-hmm. adventure yeah, story. Yeah. I can see it. Uh, and about a boy who had lost a sibling and about a boy who cared about other people. Yeah. So that's, you know, what's interesting that you're saying, and Matthew. And cried in it. There was yeah. so much in it that I'm like, I'm literally giving you like this, like, like picture book in, in my head of what I had. I remembered the hat. I remembered his face. I, and he was older than me, but I loved the idea. My grandparents lived, uh, my grandmother lived in Far, uh, Far Rockway, my dad's mother, and my mom's mother and father lived on Grand Central Parkway, but they, my dad was from Brooklyn, uh, Queens, Brooklyn and then Queens, and my mother was from the Bronx. That's how you moved up. Bronx science. From yeah, Queen- I know, I know. <laughs> from Brooklyn to I know, Queens. my mother's from Grand Concourse. 
Bronx Science, Stuyvesant, like the whole thing. When I would go to Man- my grandfather worked in the Empire State Building. We found out on the second floor, unfortunately, which is a, which is a great punchline. But um, I had this thing about Manhattan. We took a couple trips. You know, we were in MoMA. We were we were in we went to see Hair. We thought of it as Uptown. Whatever, <laughs> driving in from Baltimore and going across the Veranzano Bridge yeah. and just ending up in Manhattan and the traffic. And look at my work. Look yeah. at my work. Oh, yeah. One of the things that I loved about The Sopranos was this revolutionary concept in those titles of someone leaving, leaving. Manhattan. Yeah. So New York, boy in New York, Grand Central Station, being on your own, having p- money in your pocket, going to the zoo. That spoke to you in that book. I... I, it spoke to millions. It's an millions. interesting perspective. Spoke to millions. I have worked no, but with not people second from, graders. What's interesting to me, my parents saying, did not censor anything. Yeah, I, mine did I, I saw Cabaret the same year. We went and saw it in the movie theater. It was the best picture. That reminds me of how young you are, because I saw Cabaret. So that was like Cabaret's original was like 1973 or four. Yeah, that's when it was, 1972. Yeah. yeah. In Sweden. That's hilarious. All right. By the way, I was already ditching school and. It was already a lot of trouble. Well, we could do like a whole second <laughs> Sweden interview. Sweden was <laughs> pure darkness, and I loved it. I loved being How, in, you were there a in year? the city. We were there for about seven months. My mother, my grandmother got cancer. My mother left with my little brother, and we were alone with my dad, just my sisters and I. And he was the ultimate dad at that point, just like making up for it. We like did anything. We went, we went out at night. You know, we would go for a walk at night and get ice cream like every night. And in the meantime. The winter was there. I would walk to school. I remember I got caught one of my first shoplifting experiences. One of your first, Matthew? Yeah, when yeah. was your most recent? <laughs> I'm not going to say. Shoplifting is theft. Um, and da- the most damaging, it is not a victimless crime, but I was a person who did that. And um, I got caught in a department store that we would cut through. Um, and I had shoplifted this hook that you take that had a sticky tape on it that I could put on the wall in my bedroom. My parents were like, where did you get that? My parents caught me and I said, it was on the floor at the store. That was my rationale. Did they punish you? Oh, yeah. Have you started working on the Romanoffs, started filming it yet? I've filmed four of them so far. When did they debut? Uh, Sometime in the middle of next year. Are you excited? Oh, it's been an incredible experience. Who's in it? Who are they? We have the, you know, this is a thing, talking about the novel, about it's a it's a slightly old form that is it will be a new form. I felt that watching TV um, that that serialized drama has kind of been played out because it becomes such a chore at this point. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that you know there won't always be there and you know look you know there's going to be new ones and it's definitely part of our life. But I'm doing an actual anthology show. I don't mean like this thing that Ryan Murphy invented. Invented yeah. by the way, Ryan yeah. Murphy invented it. It's amazing. Um, but I mean like the old fashioned thing where it's a different story every week with a different cast yeah. in a different location. So already writing wise, you are dealing with resolution in a different way than you do on a show where Don Draper yeah. can get fired and can have and then, someone shoot at him, but he better be there next week. Right. So there's a certain commitment to story that's different. But so far, the cast that we've had is, um, Chris, well, from Mad Men, Christina Hendricks is in one of them. I love her. John Slattery is in one of them. I have Amanda Peet. I'm working backwards here. Amanda Peet, Isabelle Huppert, um, Diane Lane, uh, Janet Montgomery. So what network? I, what, uh, and it's on Amazon. Oh, it's Amazon. Yeah. 
Is that we'll I know. have to end where, where we begin. I have to tell you. Uh, well, my friend John Mankiewicz so, is working for Amazon now. How He's on could the you Bosch not? Series. How could I not want to work there? They were I so excited know, about what I was doing, my, and they left my, my alone. Industry. I know you'll have to change. <laughs> Thanks again to Matthew Weiner. I'll leave you with some book recommendations that we compiled from all of our brilliant booksellers at RJ Joya. These books might be just what you need right now to distract you or think about happy endings. You know, in the bookstore, we're always paying attention to what people seem to be wanting to read, what they're looking for. Lately, and we've seen this periodically over the almost 28 years that we've existed, there comes a time where people just feel like they need to retreat. They don't want complicated books. They don't want deconstructionist writing. They don't want dark, ambivalent endings. They just want to be distracted, and they want everything to end happily ever after. So Julie Arians at RJ Joyas came up with the idea of asking all the booksellers to come up with some of their favorite books with happy endings, or if not happy endings, at least wildly entertaining and distracting along the way. So we'll post the whole list on our website, but let me mention a couple. One is a favorite of mine that's been out for ages, and it's called House on Mango Street by Sandra Cisneros. It's a little small book, and I guarantee you, you will fall in love with the main character. It's the kind of book you might want to keep around, and whenever you want to make yourself feel good, you'll read it again. It's just a, a gem. The other book to mention is This Is Where I Leave You by Jonathan Troper which is uh, a story of a highly amusing, dysfunctional family that had me literally laughing out loud, laughing about sibling relationships, laughing about marriage, laughing about friends. Jonathan Troper is just on, on a tear in this book. The other thing you might think about is any one of the number one ladies detective series uh, that are absolutely fantastic or Janet Ivanovich's Stephanie Plum books, Carl Hyacin, who also will guarantee to make you laugh. And then there's always Yes, Please by Amy Poehler. So if you're in the mood to read something light or funny and want to escape from what feels like complicated, if not scary news that we're hearing every day, go pick up some of these books and enjoy yourself. For a complete list of all the books we talked about today, including Matthew Weiner's brilliant Heather the Totality, which is out now, and some fun titles to distract you, just go to bookpodcast.com. Just the Right Book Podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original music was created by Mark Berman. Many thanks to our producer, Christina Torres, and our sound engineer, Pat Keogh. Thank you all very much for listening.